Yeah, I've always loved reading. My mum taught me how to read when I was four years old, and I haven't st stopped since, basically. And as a child, I always loved tales about people, and I read my way through the whole of the biography, autobiography section of the children's library and the big city that we in their library that we had. So we had a children's library, whole house. It was just like paradise to me as a child. And Dad would take us out of the house on a Saturday to the library, dump us kids there and go round to the adult library to give Mum a bit of break. And, um, yeah, I, I think it was a form of escape for me from my stresses or to real stresses at home with a mum who was sick from when I was very young. And I read those books and then I could imagine myself doing great things, having adventures, meeting all these sorts of amazing people. I was going to be a fighter pilot because I'd read about Amy Johnson, um, who got lost over the channel, but, you know, that doesn't matter. <laughs> At 10 or 11, it doesn't matter, does it? So what began as escapism actually grew into a lifelong love and fascination for people. Zoe calls it nosiness. I call it fascination. But their people and their stories leading to studying psychology, occupational therapy, and just being involved in various Christian ministry over the years. And this love of autobiographical stories has continued as an adult, and it'll be often as what I choose, and in the education of my children. So I homeschool the kids, and um, one book that Oliver and Isaac and I read a couple of years ago is called The Impossible Rescue. So it's pretty cool. If you want to borrow it later, let me know. It's done a library, really. Um, anyway, it begins, like all good stories, with a crisis to be solved. And this clicker. Ah, gone back. Be patient, Ruth. No. Am I good? Okay. So, the year is 1897, back before any of you were born, I'm pretty sure. All your parents, and for most of us, even our grandparents, were not born at that time. And on the Alaskan coast, it was dangerous and lucrative. So this was the time when whaling ships, there's a couple of whaling ships, roamed the seas, basically hunting for their prey. This year, though, unfortunately, winter came a bit early, and they got stuck in the ice, and they had limited provisions. This was eight American whale ships got stuck. Okay? And um, so it's about 300 men. And they were going to have to survive until the warmer weather arrived, the ice would break, and they could get out. The captains of most of these ships basically just said, oh, OK, can't really do anything. So they sat down and just partied hard and drank their way for a while, which was not really the way to solve your problem for your men. But anyway, they were happy. But one of the guys on one of the ships said, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. I think I could get out and he just rammed the boat backwards and forwards until, fortunately it didn't break up, but they got out and um, set off for Seattle to get help and sound the alarm and see what they could do. So was this just an impossible task, and what and who would be required? And you're asking me, what does this have to do with the Philippians, or even us? So I want to begin by recapping on last week. So Matt asked us the question, or can anyone tell me what question Matt asked us? Yeah. What? <laughs> this is poor, isn't it, Matt? Right. What are we living for? That was the question. And our chief aim from the Westminster um, Catechism was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
So as Matt outlined to us, the Philippian Christians came from and they lived in a very pagan Roman environment. And they actually going to need a whole new way of thinking as they became Christians. They needed to think through how do you live a godly life in a world that now has become strange to them and that they would increasingly become strangers. They were going to need some tools. So let's get into our passage then. So, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. So, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a pretty amazing passage. Um, and quite awe-inspiring. So, to get into it, we're going to just start by looking at the first four verses. There's an overall theme here of unity, oneness, working together, having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, seeking others' advantage, not your own, basically humility. Now, I've been pondering this phrase, same mind, for quite a while as I've prepared for this message. What does that mean? Does that mean, if we all have the same mind, that we all think the same thing, we're all in, gre- in agreement about everything, that, um, yeah, you think exactly the same things that I think? Well, clearly not, because we don't, do we? Um, and I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. It's more about being in agreement with the goals and the purposes that we're working towards. And I was thinking about how organisations and churches are the same, actually have goals, mission and vision statements, don't they? And when you look at some organisations, they are so much more effective than others, often because they have very clearly um, enunciated, I can't think of the right word, it's gone out of my head, but anyway, very clearly stated um, goals, mission and vision statements. And you know what it is that you're all working towards and you work for the common end. Um, And the more clearly that's stated, and the more it's invested in by the organisation's members, and the more focused that organisation will tend to be. So our church vision is glorifying God and growing his kingdom. So all we do, and the decisions we make, and the things that we try and do as a church, should work towards that and focus on that. The Philippians needed support and to support and encourage each other and to find their way forward to rescue those around them. 
So I've got a bit of crowd participation to illustrate this kind of concept of having the same mind or unity. So I need eight people to come up the front. You don't have to speak. You're not doing a speech or anything, so don't panic. Totally non-verbal. Well, it doesn't have to be totally non-verbal. Thank you, Danielle. Good on you. Thank you, Kate. Yeah, good on you guys. Eight's a good number. That's what I'm saying. I'm joining because I know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> one more. One more would be good. Thank you, Wendy. Okay. So if you have or haven't seen this, this is human knots. So you're going to make a circle, stand quite closely to each other, shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> okay, just make sure that a left hand holds the left hand and a right hand holds the right hand, but not the people on either side of you. Does that make sense? Don't hold on to people on either side of you, or else it's just a little circle, which isn't very exciting. And once you've done this, once they've done this, then now you're going to unknot yourself and make a nice circle without letting go of your hands, please. So you can cheer them on. Oh, look at that. Woo! Thanks. Yep. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Zoe suggested I should have chocolate for you, but in this day of budget constraints, I'm sorry, none occurred. So, what happened? What happened if one of them just tried to unknot themselves by themselves? Don't worry about anyone else. What's going to happen? You get tangled. What else would happen? You might hurt the other somebody else because you're twisting their arms. And if you're not really paying any attention. Um, we actually have to work together and listen to each other. They have to notice the other's needs. They don't want to trip somebody up, anything like that. Okay. And I think this was really clearly demonstrated. This is a map of where they had to basically go. This is Alaska. Um, right at the very top is where all the ships were stuck. This is a problem, because there's a lot of ice. So basically, the US President McKinley he actually ordered three men to carry out an incredible <coughs> overland rescue that covered 1,500 miles of treacherous Alaskan terrain in the dead of winter. They had to do that on foot, basically, because it was too iced in anywhere any closer. The other thing that he asked them to do was to acquire food on the hoof. Mm -hmm. What is there in Alaska for food on the hoof? do you think, in 1897? Seals, bears. Actually, reindeer. It was reindeer. So there were herds of reindeer which had been introduced into the area and they were successfully farmed by the indigenous people. So he said, you're going to have to get a few herds of those, drive them through all the way up to the, to the whalers, and then you're going to have to get the ships out and rescue them and bring them home. Do you reckon you can do it? And these guys said, yep, we're up for it. Okay. Um, and later, oh, later on, I've got the photo of the rescue ship. So the particular ship that they use is called the Bear, and it's a cutter that was, in those days, it's like your um, Coast Guard. So these guys were used to doing rescues, but just this is a pretty big kind of thing. So meanwhile, 
all the people, there's no mobile phones. Okay. The people at, Mount, at Point Barrow were in there having no idea that this guy had got home to Seattle. They did not know that whether the rescue, they were ever going to get rescued. And as a lot of big groups of humans in crisis, uh, they kind of did nothing. Lay down, refuse to move, lay on the snow, just leave me here sorts of things, stole things off each other, just ridiculous. Even to the point that they stole food and clothing, and they stole clothing from graves of the indigenous people. It was pretty, pretty rough. rough. So, they, so there was a couple of guys there trying to look after them, who happened to be at a research station, trying to look after them, all the other people at the other end. So in order for this to actually work, they had to work together and trust each other. So the people all at Point Barrow and then the people coming on the beer had to trust each other as they put their own lives on the line to achieve their purpose. There's no room there for self-interest. And I would contend that it's always near impossible to have unity without humility. In order to have the same mind and heart, we actually have to set aside our own interests. And as Christians, this amounts to seeking the mind of Christ, which we talk about. Okay, it's going to be time. So, there is the phrase here in verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's that phrase again. Why is it that Paul is talking about mind? Why is he not just saying, oh, you just all agree together? I think it's because what we think and our attitudes are actually the basis of our speech and our action. When we're seeking to be more like Jesus and to follow him, then our beliefs change, don't they? Well, they need to change. And as our beliefs change, our attitudes need to change, which then should change our behaviour. So in psychology, um, cognitive behavioural therapy is a is a thing that is used quite frequently. And one of the, the basis of that is saying that it's very hard to change someone's behaviour or for them to change their behaviour, like addictions and various other things, if you can't change their beliefs. So their belief system about themselves and about other people needs to change for their behaviour to change. Makes sense, doesn't it? As Christians, we seek God to change our thinking by the Holy Spirit working in us. The Philippians were needing to change their thinking, their whole way of thinking about themselves and the world. They need to stop just living for number one, and they need to live to please God and serve others. Now, in the Roman world, humility was not a virtue. So this was a whole new way of thinking. And having the same mind, the same mind of Christ, is only possible because we have his spirit in each of us. It's not about us, is it? So what was this mind that was in Christ Jesus then? If that's the mind we have to emulate, what was it? Oh, sorry. I knew I'd forget one of these things. Anyway, so verses 5 to 8. I'll just re recap. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. What was that? Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, I've used the NRSV translation for a reason, because it most accurately translates this concept. The key phrase here is, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Different versions have different word for that, but exploited is the, the best kind of sense of what's going on. Now, there are two kings in the Bible that come to mind for me when, who needed to learn this lesson. They sought to be equal to God, and they exploited that belief to their peril. There have been many others throughout history who have done the same, and we all do it to a certain extent. So, first one, Nebuchadnezzar, whom we read about in Daniel. He was a king of Babylon in the time of Daniel in the Old Testament. You know, familiar with Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel had prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar, so he'd even been told what was going to happen if he didn't acknowledge God. But like all great despots, he ignored it until one day. In Daniel 4.29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is not this magnificent Babylon which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling will be with the animals of the field. There's more. You shall be made to eat grass like the oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. And immediately, this all happened. And then we hear from Nebuchadnezzar. When that period was over, in verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honoured the one who lives forever. This is not a Jewish king. Now I, in 37, Nebuchadnezzar, so he said a few other things, you need to follow God, everybody has to do this. Praise and I praise and extol and honour the King of Heaven, for all his works are truth and his ways are justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. So now he had put God in his rightful place and stopped making himself equal with God. In the New Testament, it's recorded in the book of Acts, a story about King Herod. Most people have heard of King Herod. He had James the Apostle killed and and Peter the Apostle arrested. So on the appointed day, this is in Acts 12, 21 to 23, on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat on the platform, and he delivered a public address to the people. The people kept shouting, this is the voice of a god and not a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. True story. Watch out. So anyway. <laughs> so Jesus, however, who actually was God in very nature, unlike these guys, he did not exploit that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So how does this actually work? So as with any of these things, there's been a lot of theological controversy over the ages. But in the context that Paul is referring to, he is saying, I'm not interested in how much 
Jesus was God and how much he was man and all that, he's actually saying this is an example, a pattern of how the Philippians should live. That is, they should live a life in which disunity, discord and personal ambition were dead, as one Bible commentary puts it. In other words, they need to work together for the good of others and not for self. And I think we can learn from this. So there have actually been, over time, many kings and queens who have dressed like commoners for various reasons. And one popular story concerns the Quanlong Emperor, 1735, who had a habit of travelling long distances in disguise so he could inspect his empire and just find out firsthand the life of the ordinary people. So in a way, that's what Jesus did. You see, Jesus was God, equal with God, but he actually emptied himself of his glory in order to be born as a human. The term, the theological term for that is incarnation, basically dwelling in carnal flesh. He then was obedient to his father's will, which led to his crucifixion. So Jesus, though, he didn't actually lay aside his nature. This is the interesting thing. He didn't lay aside his nature, but his status. In order to bring us to the Father, he was willing to lay aside and empty himself of his glory, his status, but he still remained God by nature. In Christ, we are all the same. You know what? Our status is not that important, but our nature remains. It's kind of like Jesus took off the label that said, I'm God, shiny bling, glory, all that stuff, and he just became an ordinary man. Isaiah 53 even says that there was nothing special about his appearance that would make us look. But we know that people were drawn to him because of his nature. Never had anyone spoken like this, loved like this. He was utterly at home with who he was. So this is the essence of this passage, I think. What lengths will you go to in order to seek unity? You know, I think we all have status labels. You might be a teacher a deli assistant, a disability support worker, a father, a pastor, a youth leader, kids' church leader, an accountant, assistant manager, married couple, worship leader. Do you think you get the idea? You can take those labels off, can't you? And not have the status that goes with it. But your nature still remains the same, and you still have your skills and abilities. And this is important in our church community. But when we hold on to our status, then we're actually deciding who is more or less important. And we're ranking who we want to listen to and value. Oh. Why is that doing that? Okay. Thank you, Erwin. Um, so John Dixon of the Centre for Public Christianity defines humility in this way, and I really like it. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status and use your influence for the good of others before yourself, to hold your power in the service of others. So asking you, will you lay aside your status to be of the same mind and with those who live and serve alongside you? Paul gave them an incredible example in himself, but more importantly... He's pointing to Jesus. Verses 9 to 11 go on to say, therefore, God, therefore, because Jesus did this, because he made himself low, then God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, 
So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. <coughs> so God exalted Jesus, he lifted him up, but Jesus had sought God's glory in all that he did, and he didn't pay attention to his own, did he? So God gave him the name that is above every name. Now that's not a title, that is actually the highest honour and authority over all creation. Jesus was glad to be obedient to his Father's will so that God would receive that honour and glory. So we too need to have that joy in our unity as Christians because God is honoured and given the glory that is due to him. So how does it apply to us then? This is Jesus. When we seek to be of one mind and purpose, we have to lay aside our status and love and work alongside those who are different to us. Seek humility, looking to the interests of others, and say, not my will, but God's. In their possible rescue, status in the end was actually unimportant. They actually all needed to work together towards a common end, and they all had to put their own desires and their interests aside, which included the stranded whalers, who proved to be a rather unruly and actually sometimes ungrateful lot. A bit like humans, really, isn't it? So what might this look like for you? Will you set aside your needs and your interests to invest in others' lives? Would you be prepared to lay aside your status to build the body of Christ here in this church? I think it means that we need to listen to and respect the people that we serve alongside. You know, we need each other. Just because you're an expert in one area does not mean you're an expert in everything. We need to learn and listen from it to each other. Caring for others, putting their needs ahead of our own. Being prepared to do jobs without recognition. Grabbing the vacuum cleaner, not waiting to be asked and not worrying if nobody notices you've done it. And find joy in being of the same mind and purpose. Now, I think there's a lot of different areas that we can apply this. Families. Marriage, for example. I think marriage is founded on humility. Gavin and I find great enjoyment in working together for common purpose. But we also seek to put each other's needs first and serve one another. As parents, we can earn respect by humbly serving those in our family and those outside it. You know, I don't think there are any shortcuts to this. Model what you want to see. Don't just demand love and respect. You actually need to earn it. But children don't get off the hook either, do they? Show humility towards your parents and, yes, your siblings. Don't just look to your own interests. Seek to show love and to serve in your family. You know what? You don't have to be right and you don't have to be first. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. It's a bit of a mantra in our home. Okay, what about youth leaders, kids' church leaders, and other ministry leaders, which covers many of us here? Don't trade on your status. What do I mean by that? You don't have to wear your label. This is who I am. I'm a leader, so you need to do what I ask. You need to do it because, listen to me, you actually just need to love and serve each other, being team players and seeking unity with our teams. That's the basis of empowering servant leadership. 
do it, you expect. The guy, Lieutenant Jarvis, who actually headed up the whole rescue thing, he basically, what was said about him is that he would never ask anybody to do what he wouldn't do himself, and that he selflessly just served. And it was a huge impact on what happened. So lay aside your status, and also build into those who are younger and less experienced than you. We've all been there. We all need encouragement and support. My passion to be involved with young adults is because I love to see you guys grow and be empowered and to be leaders and to kind of to, to get those experiences and those opportunities that maybe I wasn't always given when I was a young adult. I think we had some people who empowered us and some people who didn't really encourage us in what we were doing. And I just want that for people. I want you to to be valued and to see that you all have a place. So, but that requires you to put your own desires aside to build the church community. I don't always get to do what I want to do so that these, so that, you know, things will happen. What about at work? Are you seeking others' interests in your work environment? You know, we don't stop being a Christian. We can't take that label off when we walk out of here, can we? And sometimes we do. Be the same person. Your nature, who you are, is not going to change. Seek to be that person. You know, in a work environment, how often do we need to be humble and not always need to be right? Do you think you get the idea? I think I could go on. There's a lot of examples, but I think you're getting the idea. And for people out in our community, both in and out of the church, Look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Where can you make a difference and humbly serve those around you? So many people are crying out for love and connection. Now, there is a question that all of this raises. Does it mean that if we are mistreated, abused or bullied, we should just put up with it because we're being humble? Well, no. It's never okay to abuse or mistreat or bully others. I think that's essentially exploiting one's status, which then leads to you exploiting others. Humility is not about accepting mistreatment. Humility is about serving and putting others' interests ahead of your own. So if this is or has been an issue for you, please talk to someone that you trust about it. Seek help. And more importantly, if you see it happening, call it out. Don't just stand there and let that happen in any environment. That's truly looking to the interests of others. So Paul was encouraging the church at Philippi, and we just look back at the end of chapter 1, to stand firm in one spirit, strive side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live after Jesus' pattern, to humbly serve each other in their community, why? So that God would receive the honour that was rightfully his. This was going to change their world, and it will change ours too. What I want you to do before we wrap up is just take a few minutes to consider, where do you fit in all of this? Where is God challenging you? Just take some few moments just to ponder that, and perhaps briefly share with one or two around you, what might you need to change? What might you need to consider? I call this my take home, as my Bible study guys will know.
I think it's important to think about where you, what God might be saying to you. So just take a few moments and then we'll wrap up. So this um, here is actually the refuge station at Point Barrow and this guy that I spoke about before, De Jarvis, is in the middle there. Just a bit of a... It's before they were... Obviously he'd got there. <laughs> obviously they achieved it. They did get there. So in September of 1898, the stranded whalers and rescuers all arrived home in Seattle. And oh, Irwin, can I just have that last slide? Thanks wherever it is, um, one, almost one year after they'd been locked in the ice. You know, this story is remarkable because it actually happened. It reveals how brave men and women will risk and sacrifice all to help those in peril. They experienced great joy when the impossible thing was achieved. They worked together well, and as I've mentioned before, the rescued whalers were often unworthy and ungrateful men, really a bit like us. Jesus enacted the greatest rescue mission of all time, not by heroics or by using his status, but actually by emptying himself, identifying with us and always being obedient to his Father's will. And we should be forever grateful. Jesus' ultimate goal should be ours also, that God be given the honour and the glory in all that we do. May it be not my will, but yours, Lord. Let's pray.